2: Great to have you along for some more half hour history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about a fella that I'm, sh- I'm sure you heard of this bloke before, Giacomo Casanova. He is, uh, of course, well known to history today for being a bit of a, well, I guess not, I was going to say being a bit of a Casanova, but he was actually the, the Casanova, I mean, he named the trope, didn't he? He was the Casanova. His life? was absolutely fascinating absolutely fascinating he lived one of the richest and fullest lives you'll ever come across packing his years with adventures of all kinds across across countless disciplines and professions i mean check this out on his wikipedia page right he is listed as having been at various points a lawyer clergyman soldier violinist con man pimp Gourmand, dancer, businessman, diplomat, spy, politician, medic, mathematician, social philosopher, cabalist, playwright, and writer. And on top of that, his proficiency when it came to uh, seducing women, as of course we know has caused his name centuries later to become, you know, a byword for, for philanderers and womanizers everywhere. He really did live an absolutely fascinating life, both in and out of the bedroom. And uh, we're quite lucky that he chose to write extensive memoirs uh, about his life in his old age. Um, and quite aside from the many amazing stories to be found, in his memoirs, it's also one of the best uh, records that we have of of what like day to day life was like amongst European society of the eighteenth century. So it's a very very uh, useful historical document in in, uh, in that sense. Um, he travelled extensively throughout Europe. He met all sorts of famous historical figures uh, throughout his travels. So you know he didn't he, did, he didn't just um, you know he didn't just travel a long way. He met people that I'm sure you've heard of: Frederick the Great, Episode One, uh, Voltaire, Catherine the Great, Benjamin Franklin, maybe even Mozart. Um, and of course, throughout his life and his adventures, he jumped into bed with uh, countless women and also some, a couple of men as well, uh, which uh, resulted in plenty of scandalous stories, some of which we'll get across today. Um, and I suppose this is as good a time uh, as ever to, to mention a couple of things. First of all, uh, the very carefully cultivated PG image of this podcast is probably going to well and truly come under threat this week. I mean, I'll do my best to be about as polite as possible as I can. Uh, but I mean, might come, come on! It's Casanova. What, what, what are you going to? What are you? What are you going to? What, what are you? Also, what are you listen, What are you Listen to this episode with kids around. I mean, you, you knew what you were getting yourselves into, and also kids listening to this. Ooh, boy, you're going to, you're going to learn a thing or two today. Make no mistake. Make sure mum and dad aren't around because wow, you are going to hear some very interesting stuff here. Uh, second thing, of course, is that uh, Casanova, um, and you know, I, I don't want to sound like too much of an apologist here, but Casanova did live 250 years ago. Uh, with a very different moral system and certainly not this this podcast certainly isn't an endorsement of some of the things that he that he did uh, throughout his lifetime because uh wow 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 yeah well uh, well well so a lot of the stories you know they're they're lighthearted or or silly or funny or, or just entertaining and you know nothing more serious than than a broken heart a bit of roguery that sort of stuff some of the stuff this guy did was um yeah it, it look it, it it hasn't stood the test of time it it hasn't aged particularly well and i'm certainly not trying to hide that i'm certainly not trying to you know i'm just i've definitely not focusing on it because this is a light frothy history podcast and you know but certainly this isn't an endorsement of of some of the uh, <clears throat> yeah certain behaviors that Casanova exhibited so let's get to it in any case uh, let's uh, let's uh, have a chat about this uh, this bloke's extremely interesting life if 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 nothing else you will all agree that his life was extremely interesting um, and we'll discover as we talk about it just why his name carries many of the associations that it does today. It's going to be a long one. Uh, it is uh, th- there's a lot to get across here. He wrote extensive memoirs that are extremely lengthy, and even just you know getting across the the, the interesting bits from them is going to take us a while. So we are going to do a two parter today. We'll uh, get across his, his uh, you know the first half of his life, younger as a younger bloke, uh, growing up as a um, as a young adult as well, and some of the adventures he had. And we'll wrap things up after uh, wrap, uh, wrap things up after a particularly momentous occasion that took place. Uh, it sort of marks a good break point for us to then move on to next week's episode where we will uh, we will talk more 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 extensively about his travels and and people that he met and and adventures that he had further abroad farther away from his uh, his home of venice but again two-parter hope that's not too much of an issue but again just so much to talk about with this bloke anyway let's get out of the way we're going all the way back here all the way back to 1725, the year 1725, when Giacomo Casanova was born to a pair of actors, Gaetano Casanova and his wife, Zanetta Ferrucci, in Venice. Now, Venice at this point was an independent republic. It was known as the uh, more or less the the pleasure capital of Europe, uh, kind of like an 18th century Vegas, uh, probably the best way to put it. Uh, You know, there's there's parties, there's gambling, courtesans, and all all that sort of stuff, the the famous Venice Carnival. So tourists, they flocked to the city, um, and it's against this backdrop that Casanova grew up. However, unfortunately, as a young bloke, when he was just eight years old, his old man died, his dad died, uh, and he ended up being looked after by his grandma because his mum are going around, you know, performing and acting troops around Europe. Um, And as a kid, he had a couple of health issues. Unfortunately, he used to get terrible nosebleeds. Uh, His grandma grandma to treat them actually took him uh, him to a witch, uh, although this didn't seem to do too much to help. Uh, But eventually, it wasn't too long before he moved away from Venice. He was nine years old. He moved away from Venice as a doctor advised him that the the city's air quality was causing the nosebleeds. And so as a young boy, he ended up in the care of a clergyman, Abbot Gotzi. Now, Gotzi, he taught young young Casanova a great deal. He offered him both uh, a formal education as well as violin tuition, a bunch of other stuff as well. And Casanova remained with Gotzi for most of his adolescence. And he was a very clever young kid. He really was. He took to learning. uh, He had a voracious mind. uh, And uh, he became a student at the University of Padua at the age of 12, uh, eventually graduating with a law degree sometime later. But uh, he wasn't that interested in law. And as a student, uh, you know, look, he took took the path to become an ecclesiastical lawyer. um, And he spent a lot of time in and out of Venice and Padua as he studied. Uh, But it was during this time that he did a couple of things while he was a student. That he did a couple of things for the first time that he would go on to do very many, many times throughout his life with great regularity uh, for the rest of his days. The first one was to ingratiate himself with a wealthy patron. His first being the seventy-six-year-old Venetian senator Alvise Gasparo Malapiero. Now Malapiero, uh seemed to have you know take a liking to uh, to Casanova and, and ended up becoming this young uh, this young kid's patron. You know, and he taught him about hobnobbing in high, in high society, how to be a bit of a snob with food and the drink, how to fit in with fancy nobles, all that sort of stuff, you know, basically just punch above his weight in terms of social status there. So Casanova's doing well uh, with the patronage from uh, Malapiera on both, you know, a social standpoint, also financially. But the second one, you know, he ingratiated himself with his senator, and he also ingratiated himself into, you know, women's bedrooms. (laughs) And uh, in the case of his first time, uh, the bedroom of a pair of sisters. Uh, yes, just as you'd expect for this bloke, Casanova, he lost his, uh, he lost the old V-plates after jumping into bed with two girls, sisters, Nanetta and Marton uh, Savonnier. Now, he was around 15 or 16 at this point, and uh, this experience ultimately made him decide. It had such a lasting impression on this bloke, even at that age. It made him decide that chasing girls was going to be a lifelong hobby of his, which, of course... It very much was. Uh, after jumping into bed with these two sisters to to kick off his innings, he certainly did uh, swing for the fences uh, from that point onwards. Um, uh, so much so, in fact, uh, you know, even as a young as a, as a teenager, that it wasn't long before his first patron, this bloke Malapiero, actually booted Casanova out out in his ass because he caught him going after the girl that Malapiero uh, had his eye on. So uh, that's how he, he he both gained and lost his first patron there. Anyway. Despite being, you know, readily distracted by women left, right, and center, Casanova he graduated with his law degree at the age of seventeen, and he entered into clerical law. He was made an abbot, but I tell you what: as I said, he just wasn't suited for the life of the man of a cloth, uh, man of the cloth. As you, as you can imagine, this bloke he did not last long as a priest. Um, he was off with women whenever he could be. And when he wasn't hopping into bed with someone, he was off, you know, bloody losing all his money in the gambling houses. So uh, hardly the sort of uh, the, the, the highfalutin life you'd expect of a, of, a, of a clergyman there. And he actually ended up in prison for the first time at this point as well. Uh, for the first time, not the last time, certainly, as you'll discover, um, as he fell heavily in debt due to his gambling. Uh, but he was released before too long. And, and he continued, he did continue his work as an ecclesiastical lawyer here and there. But you know, he just he just his heart wasn't in it. He's working for bishops and cardinals. He's got getting great connections. There was one cardinal in Rome uh, that introduced him to the Pope, Pope Benedict the Fourteenth, and during their meeting, Casanova took advantage of the meeting meeting with you know this this uh, this very powerful man um, to ask him for a papal dispensation so that he wouldn't have to eat fish because as he said, it irritated his eyes. I mean, the stones on this bloke, going up to the Pope as bold as brass and just saying, oh, listen, mate, I'm just, I just, don't like fish. It'd be great if I didn't have to eat it like all the other good Catholics. Anyway, he's still going around, of course, chasing girls left, right and centre. Can't get enough of it. We don't have time for every single story of his uh, when it comes to, you know, what he was doing in the in the boudoir. But I do want to share throughout these episodes some of the better ones as we talk about this uh, this bloke's life. Because at one point, right, here's, here's a cracker. Right? At one point... He goes to this dinner. He goes out to this dinner, and there's this castrato singer, right? A castrato, if you don't know, is a uh, is a bloke who's had his nuts chopped off as a young man before puberty, right, uh, to maintain a really high singing voice. Now they don't do this anymore. There are recordings, actually, from from a long time ago hundred you know hundred or hundred fifty years ago of castrati singing, uh, but obviously we you know we sort of moved on from that sort of stuff. Anyway. This castrato, right? um, uh, His name is Bellino, and Casanova absolutely smitten, absolutely smitten by this um, by this singer, voice of an angel. Also, you know, just can't get enough of this uh, of of, of this uh, of this castrato, right? But here's the thing: Casanova doesn't think that Bellino is a castrato at all. He reckons that Bellino is actually a woman pretending to be a castrato. Now, Casanova seemed to prefer women generally, but he may have hopped into bed with the odd bloke here and there as well. But in any case, he is absolutely captivated by this singer um, and chases Bellino up and down, determined to get him into bed, ter- determined to get into bed with him here, uh, or with her, as as Casanova suspects. But Bellino keeps going, no, 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 mate, I'm not going to reach. I'm a bloke as well. You know, it wouldn't be right. Anyway, Bellino Resist is resistance. Absolutely futile, of course. It's I mean, we're talking about Casanova here. We're talking about Casanova. Of course, you've got no bloody chance, mate. Of course of course, he's going to get you to bed with him. And once Bellino was finally been won over by Casanova's charms, it turns out that Casanova was right all along. And Bolino was in fact a woman pretending to be a Castrato. She did this to get like gigs and roles that weren't available to women. Apparently, there's just, there's just much more work for a castrato than there was for a for a you know female singer. So with, Cas- uh, with Casanova discovering her secret, the jig is up, and the two of them actually end up, you know, in an entanglement for, for quite a while. But however, like most of Casanova's entanglements, it wasn't to last. In fact, you know, despite the fact that he sniffed Bellino's secret out from a mile away, Casanova soon got bored of the singer. And uh, like most of the entanglements that he had with women over the years, it, it, it did not last very long, nor, for that matter, did his legal career. Eventually, Casanova was booted out of the church once and for all for one too many indiscretions. He's bloody ghostwriting love letters for another cardinal at one point, not to mention all the other stuff that's going on, you know, sleeping with people left, right, and center. And so he had to seek a new career and he decided to join the army. He decided that he would uh, buy himself a commission in the Venetian army, uh, and so became an officer. And he greatly enjoyed, let me tell you this, he greatly enjoyed dressing up in the uniform and all the sort of, you know, the prestige and the attraction that came along with that. He loved every single part of it, except, of course, the responsibilities and actual, you know, work he had to do as an army officer. He He spent much of his time, you know, gambling away his money and doing very little else and eventually became bored. I mean, he's not even 21 at this stage, by the way. I mean, he's not even, he hasn't even, even turned 21. He's already on to his, you know, second career here. You can tell he's got a pretty bloody short attention span. Anyway, after after you know a little bit after after the shine came off the apple of uh, of, of you know being a military officer and, and being able to wander around and you know strut around in your, in your fancy uniform there fancy outfits, uh, he sold off his commission. He got bored of it. He sold off his commission, and with the money that he earned from so- selling it, he decided that he would become a professional gambler. So he really has he's just really sampling a, a, just a little bit of everything from the great buffet of life at the moment. The only problem with his plans to become a gambler, much like his plans to become a military officer and indeed a lawyer, he was not very good at it. He was not very good at gambling at all, and he didn't really want to get any better. He was in it for the fun and not for the winnings, you know, not the hard-nosed, wrinkled brain attitude that you need to be a card shark. And uh, it wasn't long before he'd lost all his money once again after this ill-fated attempt to become a professional gambler. So Broke once again, he decided that the gambler's life was not for him after all, and after finding another wealthy patron for himself, this bloke's, uh, bloke uh, was named Alvise Grimani, he began instead to perform as a violinist. So we're now on to career number four, again, by the age of 21 or so. He fell in with a group of musicians. You remember that he, he learned from uh, Abbott Gotzi uh, how to play the violin. And he fell in with a group of musicians while, while performing at a theatre in Venice. And these musicians, I tell you what, they were much more up Caf- C- Casanova's alley in terms of, uh, you know, the, the suitability to his sort of... Um, uh, sense of, uh, you know, proprietary and, and 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 roguery generally. They were all scoundrels. They were all scoundrels, every single one of them. While he wasn't off performing with them, right, during their time off, he would go around with these blokes like a gang, right, roving the streets of Venice, getting up to all sorts of tricks and all sorts. Of, he'd get up to no good with his new mates every single day of the week. They'd do stuff like, uh, seems like he was very into practical jokes, Um, uh, Casanova. It seems like today, if you were around, he would have like a... A prank YouTube videos uh, channel because he really, really seemed to like practical jokes. He's going around with these blokes. They're doing stuff like untying um, people's boats and gondolas. Remember, they're in Venice, uh, so untying the boats and gondolas that you know that were moored out in the front of people's homes, so they'd float away with the current. Or he would send doctors and midwives on fake calls to people's homes. This, this is the 17th century equivalent of, of like basically like joyriding and prank calls, this bloke was an absolute rascal and he did not care. He also didn't really like being a musician very much. This bloke just didn't like work, it seems. And um, as a result, uh, it was actually very lucky for him when uh, when something quite significant took place one night after a performance, right? He was riding home in a gondola with a powerful Venetian senator whose name was, uh, he was a patrician, patrician Bragadin. Uh, they have been at a wedding ball, and uh, Casanova's on his way home uh, in the gondola with this bloke Bragadin. And Bragadin, while they're uh, while they're traveling here on the on on the canals, he has a stroke. Right, so the gondola has to stop, has to pull up sharply, has to stop, so he could be. I was going to say treated, but it's not really treated. He was going to be bled by the doctors. I mean, terrific, great great job, 18th century doctors. Anyway, so that was the plan, right? They pull out, pull over. Is that what you do in Venice? I don't even know. I don't know what the rules are there. Anyway, they they they. they Park the boat, moor it, I guess, and um, and these doctors they attend to Bragadin, who again has just had a stroke. Right now, they they don't only bleed him, which is obviously only going to make things worse. They they then get a an ointment of mercury and smear it all over his chest. Now, as you now, as you no doubt know, mercury is toxic. This wasn't going to help Bragadin at all. But luckily, Casanova, at this point, he steps in. He'd taken a bit of an interest um, as, a, as a younger bloke when he was at university in medicine. And while he, he never really had the chops for it, he, uh, he, he was at least um, a, a little bit knowledgeable. I don't know. Whatever it was, right? He saw this bloke getting a mercury and put it all over him. It immediately, right, he, Bragadin reacted horrifically to it. He got a terrible fever, started to choke in his own windpipe. And so Casanova jumps in um, and, uh, and and takes charge of the situation. All of, all of Bragadin's mates, they, they think it's that bad. He's about to die. They start to call for a priest because they think he's about to die. But Casanova, he has the mercury washed off Bragadin's chest to the protest of all the doctors that are there. And after cooling him down to reduce the fever, Bragadin starts to recover and ends up making a full recovery from this stroke. Now, Casanova he pissed off a fair few doctors with this uh, with this treatment. They you know they they tried to proclaim that he was a quack and didn't know what he was talking about. But Casanova won the day. I'll tell you what he saved Bragadin's life, and Bragadin considered Casanova to have almost magical powers. Um, after and 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 this was a huge huge boon for for Casanova. A great stroke of good luck here. Because saving the life of a a wealthy Venetian nobleman certainly, I mean, was not a bad move at all for our indolent hero. He's now found himself... His richest patron yet. Bragadin, he took Casanova in, nominally hiring him as a legal assistant, but in reality, Casanova just lived a life of slow paced, lazy, noble luxury. At Bragadin's expense, Casanova dressed him, he dressed up, dressed up richly, you know, got all these fine clothes, he gambled excessively, and of course, chased girls up and down Venice like there was no tomorrow. Bragadin and Casanova seemed to get on very, very well indeed. Bragadin was a cabalist, right? He was into mysticism and the, and the occult, and so Casanova also got swept up in this as well. As, as I said, Raggedon thought that uh, Casanova had, had had mystical powers, and so Casanova kind of leant into that. And he enjoyed an interest in this sort of thing, the occult and mysticism, for the rest of his life. He ended up joining the Freemasons as well. We'll talk about that. And he always had a a, a bit of a thing for the supernatural uh, until his dying days, basically. He, he, he maintained a bit of an interest in them. Anyway, as I said, the other thing that he was doing while he was in the um, in the patronage, enjoying uh, the patronage of Bragadin, was of course chasing girls. And uh, more than once throughout his life, including while amongst the uh, the Bragadin household here, uh, Casanova's skirt chasing would follow a, a distinct pattern. So what would happen was this: he'd find a woman who was involved with uh, a bit of a prick, right? Someone who was some bloke who was like fiercely jealous or nasty or just straight up abusive, right? He would then win the, the, the woman over, right? He'd win her over, he'd, you know, either he'd embarrass or humiliate the man or he'd seduce and charm her, or, you know, he'd, he'd bring low the lover or, or, or just, you know, win her over with his charms, whatever. And then after a short affair, right, after he was involved uh, with, this, uh, with this woman for a while, he'd then get bored. He'd, he'd, he'd start to become characteristically bored of, 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 uh, of whoever he was seeing and he would start to plan his exit. And it was the exit from many of these relationships that was the most amazing thing because his exit was ultimate was often often the ultimate it's not you, it's me, right? This typical line that people trot out when they're trying to break up with someone. But he would go to the most extreme lengths to uh, to see this uh, see this sort of idea through right he'd go to whichever woman he was go, you know any given woman he was seeing, and he'd say oh you know he'd, he'd go on about how unworthy he was and how you know he could do so much better and he would promise he would help her to find a better man who was actually worthy of, of, of you know of her affection not not him obviously he's just getting bored but he's not telling her that he's like oh you know i don't deserve you all the rest of it right and as unbelievable as it sounds in order to gracefully exit these romantic entanglements, right? He would then set up the woman that he was sleeping with with a new bloke for her to go out with, or sometimes even marry. And he did this, uh, as I say, he did this exactly this while he was staying with Bragadin with a woman whose name was Christine. Now, Christine, um, she uh, she was on a very tight rein with her uncle uh, and Casanova got christine into bed with him you know got her, worked worked her out of the influence of her uncle and uh, and jumped hopped into bed with her but then after a while he started going jeez i'm getting sick of this and, and started to worry about how to get out of the situation without breaking her heart and of course you know dishonoring her so this is not a joke he went so far to to look after this this christine woman you know to try to try to break up with her he went he went so far to try to make this happen smoothly he not only set her up with another bloke, right? He also paid for their marriage license and organised the ring. I mean, today we worry about you know breaking up with people via text message, and here's Casanova organising a bloody marriage in order to get out of a friends with benefits situation. Absolutely, he even went to their wedding. He's there at the wedding. You know, he seemed to find the whole thing hilarious. I mean. He's being a gentleman about it, I guess. And then there's what this bloke was doing. But that's that's how he would disentangle himself from these lovers that he had once he got bored with them. I mean, it was unbelievable. Anyway, as you can imagine, um, you know, doing all this sort of stuff all the time, he eventually got into rather more trouble than he could handle, uh, you know, as a ferocious libertine. He left a, a pretty chaotic wake behind him. And, and some of this some of this stuff caught up with him eventually. After three years of staying with Bragadin, Casanova was forced into exile after a fresh round of scandals uh, emerged, right? This and this is this is quite unbelievable. The, the, the stuff that, have, that that resulted in his first, not his last, but his very much his first exile from Venice. Check this out. So one day, Casanova, he's out. Walking to the countryside, he's got some. He's got some companions. Obviously, he's got a mate. Of his, some girls that he was chasing as well, of course. And he's out walking, uh, walking out in the countryside. When he took, uh, he took his friends along a, a shortcut towards a farmhouse that he'd used uh, many times before. Now, the idea was to get to the farmhouse. Obviously, you know, have a couple of drinks. Um, you know, make merry and just, eh, just sort of see where the night takes us. That was that was his plan. Um, but but in part of that sort of set up there, right? He'd done this before was along this shortcut right there was a it involved crossing a muddy ditch and uh, in order to cross this ditch he had a plank that he would use to uh, he had a prepared he'd leave it nearby he'd use it to cross the ditch and then you know in the most in the most gentlemanly manner you can imagine he would then help his uh, his, his companions across and uh, obviously in, in, in so doing it obviously appeared to be to be uh, to be quite the charmer right anyway they get to this ditch uh Casanova grabs the plank he puts it down and he makes obviously a big show of impressing the women uh, that he he's made it brought by crossing over and and getting ready to help them uh, once he's once he's across the other side except he never makes it to the other side because halfway when he's halfway across on this plank it splits in two and he falls into this muddy ditch, and he was covered from head to foot in mud. Obviously, I mean, look, I said before, practical jokes, pranks, they're a big part of Casanova's life at this point, both as the perpetrator and the victim. He seemed to absolutely love doing it to other people, so he obviously copped a fair few in response. But uh, uh, he was able to, uh, to see the funny side of it, he was able to laugh it off, of course, which is obviously one of the only ways you can save face in situations like that. However, internally, he was furious, and he swore revenge on whoever had done this to him, it embarrassed him in front of these uh, these women like this. So, he goes around, and he starts making inquiries to find out what, how, what had happened, and, and how his uh, how his um, his plank had been uh, been sabotaged like this, and he found out. That a man named Demetrio had paid a farmer to saw the plank almost in half, not quite, almost, right? As he knew that Casanova made use of it and he wanted to humiliate him, right? Because he knew that Casanova would walk across it and then if the plank was sawn halfway, almost half, or almost all the way through, it'd break when he's halfway through into the mud. Beautiful, right? But why is the question? Why why was this bloke, Demetrio, you know, trying to embarrass and humiliate Casanova in this way? I mean, need you ask? Is What possible reason could there be for Demetrio seeking revenge on Casanova? It's probably very obvious Casanova had nicked his bird. Uh, the, <laughs> sometime before, Dimitro had been interested in this woman and Casanova just swept in and swept her off, uh, off her feet. And uh, this was Dimitro's revenge for, having, uh, for Casanova cutting his lunch like that. Um, anyway, Casanova, determined to have the last laugh here. And so he planned his vengeance and what a vengeance it was. I mean, talk about taking things up to the next level, right? Check this out. Unbelievable. Casanova went to a cemetery and he dug up a freshly buried corpse. Sure. Okay, already we're thinking this is absolutely wild, but it only gets wilder from here because with this freshly dug up corpse, Casanova then cut its arm off. So with this dismembered arm tucked under his fully membered arm, he snuck into where Demetrio was staying, hid under Demetrio's bed, and waited for him to come to bed and go to sleep. So Demetrio comes and gets undressed, into into pajamas, gets into bed, right? falls asleep and once Demetra had fallen asleep Casanova reaches up and pulls the covers off him now Demetra, you realize oh yep okay some kind of practical joke going on I'm not going to rise to the bait he sits up and he goes I'm not scared of ghosts I don't care you're a joker you're a fool I don't care who you are what you're doing give me my covers back and that's enough so he pulls the covers back on sure enough goes back to sleep after a little bit right but once again Casanova, as he, after Dimitro's fallen back asleep, reaches back up, pulls the covers off once again. Dimitro starts like what, what are you bloody doing, mate? Stop mucking around, whoever's there like this, right? Because he knows someone's under the bed. He knows someone's trying to play a joke on him. And so Dimitro then reaches down under to pull the covers back on top of him. But this time, Casanova doesn't let up. He, he holds onto the covers and doesn't, and doesn't let Dimitro pull them up. So Casanova, oh, sorry. So Dimitro leans over the side of the bed and starts reaching under with his hand to try to grab whoever it is that's hiding under the bed. And it is, it is at this point that Casanova holds out the dismembered arm for Demetrio to grab onto. Demetrio grabs hold of it and pulls, thinking that he would soon drag out this tormentor, this practical, this japester who's under the bed there. But instead of pulling out Casanova, he pulls out this severed arm. Demetrio pulls it up, sees what it is, and promptly faints dead away. So Casanova, he is pissing himself laughing. He laughs and laughs. He can't believe he's got this one over on Dimitro. He thinks it's fantastic, Bloody patting himself on the back with his dismembered arm. He's having that great of a time. And off he goes, feeling very pleased with himself, off he goes to his own bed. But here's the thing. In the morning, when he gets up, there was quite a fuss being made around Dimitro and, and Dimitro's bed. People were crowded around him because he was completely Paralysed, and he seemed to be dying. He still got the bloody severed arm there next to him, and he's he, he, he's just he, he can't. The people can't wake him up. he's absolutely insensible. Everyone immediately knew that Casanova had done this. Everyone immediately suspected him of uh, of having perpetrated this prank on him. And while he protested his innocence, everyone was sure it was him. And it actually ended up being a much bigger deal, right, than Casanova had meant to be. Obviously, you know, he's saying, "Oh, it's just a prank, just a prank, bro, just a prank," right? But not only right. Did Dimitro never recover fully from this ordeal? He was insensible for the rest of his life, right? Casanova was charged with the defilement of a grave, which was a very serious crime. I mean, the prank notwithstanding, him being charged with the defilement of grave. I mean, this this is this is enough to you know get him in front of a get him in front of a court. And in addition to that, uh, this was at around the same time that a uh, a woman had come forth and accused Casanova of sexually assaulting her teenage daughter. And um, Casanova's defense to this was not a particularly admirable one, to be honest. It was one of these, uh, yeah, hasn't really stood the test of time um, because his robust defense to this charge, he claimed that he had never violated her, he instead had just thrashed her with a broom handle. So I know, you know, we've kind of been painting Casanova as a lovable rogue, but let's not forget that this was the 18th century and he was the product of the times and he did some pretty bloody reprehensible things that really have not stood the test of time as the the centuries have passed. Anyway, the exhumation prank uh, combined with this new accusation from this woman uh, meant that Casanova was indeed summoned to court and threatened with arrest if he didn't appear there voluntarily. Now his patron Bragadin, uh, obviously, he consulted with his patron. He said, "Listen, you know this is this has emerged. I've got this the the arm thing. I've, I've thrashed this uh, this teenager with a broom handle. What am I going to do about it?" And Bragadin offered him some very sage advice into how to deal with a crisis like this. He sat him down. And he said, "Now listen here, you know this, this. Here's here's what I think you should do. It's time to run away." Just run. Just run for it. Go into exile. And Casanova did exactly that. At the age of 23, he fled Venice at top speed so as, uh, so as to not have, stand, uh, you know, have to stand trial for, for grave robbing and, and, and broom, broom handle thrashing. And, uh, and he left Venice uh, in in what, I, as I say, is was his first exile from the city. He made his way to Parma in order to escape punishment. And in Parma, interestingly, Casanova finally met his match. A woman that he called Henrietta in his, uh, in his memoirs, a woman who he actually seemed to be very, very much in love with. Of all the women that Casanova was ever involved with, and there were a lot of them over the years, he wrote about Henrietta in the fondest possible terms and he seemed utterly heartbroken when she finally left him. After a three-month affair, oh yes, the shoe was on the other foot. Now she left him, as it's thought that she actually figured him out and got a bead on his true nature, all of his scheming and womanizing, his his nature as a fickle philanderer, and also his rather light purse at this point as well. Henrietta, she may have figured it all out, and so she flipped the script on a script on Casanova and left him in the dust. And this broke his heart for once. Casanova, heartbroken, eventually after some months. Finally returned to Venice, but uh, didn't stay long. Didn't stay long. I don't know if this was because you know he was still worried about the heat with the uh, the grave robbing thing, or he was he just he just wanted to, to travel further. But um, he didn't stay in Venice for too long. After some good fortune at the gambling tables, he repaired his fortunes quite significantly, and he decided that he was going to set off and travel. He wanted to go to France. He wanted to go to Paris, and so uh, he, he he left Venice once again and arrived in Paris in 1750, aged 25. Uh, but he had plenty of adventures on the way there. He joined the Freemasons in Lyon. Uh, he was drawn in by their mystic rituals and the like. He did have a thing for the occult, as we say. Um, and uh, his heartbreak you know, over Henrietta didn't seem to stop him from getting well and truly back into his old habits, as he, he broke a fair few hearts of his own uh, on his way to Paris and further while he was there. In Paris, he did his best to learn French, and he began to write while also chasing girls, you know, just like he'd done uh, back in Venice. And this caught up with him as well. Over the two years that he spent in Paris, he had issues with the police, he was summoned to court over pregnancies that he was supposedly involved in, and, and generally just sailed very close to the wind indeed with his philander.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
2: And after two years in Paris, he moved with his brother to Dresden in 1752, where uh, uh, their mother and sister were staying. His mum was an actor, you'll remember, and it was at the uh, the Royal Theatre there in Dresden uh, where one of Casanova's newly written plays was performed. And now, unfortunately, we've lost the script to history. It, it's it's we've lost it. We it, no no uh, surviving copies of this uh, of this script still exist today. So, unfortunately, we have lost it but it uh, it was performed all the same at the very same theater that um, that his mum often would be uh, treading the boards um, but this was uh, th- this play was was one of the many one of the, the many many the numerous literary works of Casanova decades before the expansive set of memoirs that uh, that informed us so much about his personal life he did write a great many other uh, a great many other works as well anyway after spending some time in dresden uh, he travelled to Prague and to Vienna, but he found, he found these cities to be much less to his liking, particularly Vienna, which had uh, much more rigid morals than uh, Venice and Paris. And he found that he wasn't able to live his best life as a, as a rogue and as a scoundrel, you know, jumping out of, uh, out, of, <laughs> out of bedroom windows and that sort of thing. And so after just three years away from Venice, travelling around to, to Paris and to Dresden and wherever else, he returned once more to his native, uh, his native home city. he was feeling very ready to return. And so it, uh, it was then, in 1753, he returned to Venice once more and immediately threw himself straight back into his old lifestyle, womanizing, gambling, scheming, and, and just generally just having a great time. And again, there are so many stories to tell throughout this entire period here, but I'm, I'm going to pick just one here to share, right? Because this one is, oh, geez, it's unbelievable. Have a listen to this. In 1753, He's he's after he's he's returned to Venice, right? And uh, Casanova he's now he's now obviously at the age of twenty seven, he got a um a fourteen year old girl pregnant. Oops, Caterina uh, Capretta was this fourteen year old girl that he impregnated again. Pretty gross, but you know again over two hundred fifty years ago this sort of thing well well no I was going to say this sort of thing it, it was it was pretty bad even back then. I mean it's obviously much worse today, but back then it was it was still pretty bad to do something like that. But as a result of this pregnancy. Uh, Capretta's dad sent her off to a convent, right, it, to, be, to be taken care of uh, by, by the nuns there. But even this didn't stop Casanova. He got nuns at the convent to smuggle his love letters to Capretta and to get hers back in return. However, things took a rather interesting twist as these love letters were being smuggled in and out of this convent. One of the nuns who was helping him to pass these letters on, her name was Marina Morissini, she started to take an interest in Casanova as well. And to make things even more intriguing, she was already, a nun, remember, she was already having an affair with another bloke, a French diplomat whose name was Bernie. Now, she didn't see the harm in adding another body to her account. I mean, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. So Casanova, who originally went to the convent to keep seeing Capretta, started sleeping with a different nun now, Morosini instead. But then, oh no! What's this? In the middle of their affair, this French diplomat, Bernie, he turns up at the convent. This bloke that Morosini had been sleeping with before she started, uh, you know, rooting bloody Casanova here, only to discover this bloke. He turns up and he discovers that his 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 bloody his nun, this Morosini. She's, she's got a new lover. She's in bed with a new bloke. And what happens next sounds like something out of a poorly written bit of erotica. This is ridiculous. Bernie, after discovering that Morosini is now sleeping with Casanova, ends up having a bit of a thing for Capretta, the girl who had been sent to the convent in the first place. And as Casanova is now much more interested in Morosini, we know what his attention span is like, this suits him down to the ground. And so the four of them organise to have dinner together at the convent one night with the plan being for Casanova to go with Morosini and set Berni up with Capretta. But then Berni doesn't show up for this X-rated rendezvous, right? So now Casanova is there at the convent having to have dinner with these two with Morosini and Capretta and no one else. So what does he do? Yes, exactly what you'd expect. Casanova takes both of them to bed and gives them a good tumble. These two really aren't very good nuns, are they? In the wake of this bloody menage à trois, right? Casanova and Morosini, they keep seeing each other. Morosini ends up dressing as a man to go out gambling with him, hitting the town with him before taking him back and shagging him in the convent, right? But of course, it wasn't to last. Casanova, just as he'd got tired of all these other women in his life, he also soon got tired of Morosini, who may have actually ended up shagging Capretta in the nunnery after all of this. I'm not completely sure. It wasn't really so much a love triangle, so much as it was a bloody love's bird's nest. It's that tangled up and complicated. But anyway. This story, like so many others, it ended up with Casanova squarely in the crosshairs of the Venetian Inquisition. He's impregnated a girl. She's been sent to a convent. He's gone to chase after her, ended up sleeping with a different nun, and then slept with both of them at the same time, time after trying to set her up with a French diplomat. The nun is then dressed, dressed as a bloke to go out gambling and then perhaps jumped into bed with one of the other nuns back in. So it, the whole thing is just an absolute red flag for the Inquisition in, 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 uh, in Venice, right? And he gets pulled up. In front of them, uh, they they were very, very interested in uh, Casanova's uh, boudoir-based extracurriculars, but also, interestingly, in some of the other stuff that he got up to, of course. You'll remember that Casanova had gotten into cabalism and and, and mysticism over the years, and he'd managed to collect a library of books that were forbidden by the Catholic Church— and as a result, the Inquisition and the Venetian government—they uh, they were taking a very special interest in this bloke. He's going around rooting nuns, reading bad books, and and you know just more generally perpetrating some very serious roguery here. And so, with the uh, with the noose uh, sort of with the, with the net tightening on him here, with the with the, with the noose closing on uh, on him because of all of these indiscretions, well, Casanova realised that he might be in hot water. So once again, he turns to his old patron Bragadin. Remember, uh, patrician Bragadin for advice. And once again Bragadin you sit him down and says, "Ah, oh, listen mate, you know, you're in hot water." And uh, a couple of years ago I was fortunate enough to be able to offer you some advice as to how to get out of it and I've reflected on that advice and I've thought about, you know, whether it was indeed the best thing to uh, to do in a situation like this and I've decided that uh, yes indeed it was and you should run away again. However, Casanova was not quick on the draw this time. He wasn't quick enough on the draw and so he didn't get out of Venice in time and as a result he was arrested. On the 26th of July in 1755, he was arrested on charges of blasphemy and offending common decency, although he wasn't told this. He was just taken away by 40 men-at-arms to the famous Venetian prison, the Leds. Now, the Leds referred to uh, an attic, basically the top floor of the Doge's Palace, where the roof was made of lead. It was a prison for the higher status inmates, political prisoners, clergy, that sort of thing. And Casanova was taken there as, as a well-connected, you know, young fop. He was taken there uh, rather than chucked in the in the dungeons with uh, with the Great Unwashed. And he was duly imprisoned in one of the lead cells. But again, he wasn't told why he'd been arrested. He wasn't given a trial. He wasn't even told how long he would be there for. So he really doesn't know what's going on. His cell had a bed and a table and an armchair, and he was given limited access to books but as you can imagine, this is a long way to have fallen for this free-willed libertine. He absolutely hated being in prison like this. The leads were dark and they were stuffy. They were filled with fleas, roasting hot in the summer under the metal roof, of course. Now, Bragadine, as the, as the weather turned colder, Bragadine did intervene. Uh, he led, This led to Casanova getting a small stipend, which resulted in him getting you know better food, more books, some winter clothing, some bedding, and a couple of other prison luxuries there. But all in all... Casanova, having a bloody terrible time, absolutely, absolutely hating into in prison, absolutely miserable experience it was for him. But one day, one day, he's, walk, he's on an exercise walk around the leads, and he comes across an iron bar and a piece of marble, and he's able to smuggle these two things back into his cell. He hid the bar inside the armchair that was in his room, and he used the marble, slowly but surely, to sharpen the metal into a point. So he's got himself like a little spike more or less, which he then used to dig, i guess, I don't know, dig a hole in the floor. The floor was made of wood right under his bed, he he, he hid under there and he and he car- I guess carved out a hole uh, that was you know he sure shanked it. He, rather than using a a, a portrait of a, a poster of Rita Hayworth, he used his bed to hide this uh, this hole that he was uh, that he was carving out of the wooden floor. And uh again, using this spike, right, he he burst through the wood, found a uh, a stone slab underneath it. It took weeks to, to to break through it all. But interestingly, check this out. When he was trying to break through the stone with the metal uh, spike that he had, Casanova thought about none other than Hannibal and how Hannibal had broken through rocks while crossing the Alps by using vinegar. You can hear all about that story in episode 40. And so Casanova used, he also used, some, he had some vinegar on hand, he used that to soak the stone and soon broke through it afterwards. I don't know how much the vinegar actually helped in that situation, but it just goes to show you never know, you never know what information from a Tin Pot History podcast is going to come in handy one day when you're trying to break out of the, you know, a top floor Venetian prison. So heed well my words, they may, they may come back, uh, they may be very handy for you at one point if you ever get in prison in Venice. I don't know. Anyway. His cell was right above the chambers of the Inquisition, Of some of the Inquis- uh, the Inquisition. right? There were some Inquisitors who, who, who lived directly beneath him. So his plan was to break through to the level below on a day when the Inquisitors weren't going to be there, and he'd make his escape. Now, he timed this escape very carefully. He chose an upcoming festival day to be the day that he burst through into the room below, as he knew that the Inquisitors wouldn't be there. They'd all be off at this festival, feasting and meeting up councils, whatever else. But then, just before, th- just three days before this festival, right? The hole is broken through. He's ready to go. He's ready to burst through into the uh, the ceiling, into the room below, and, and make his escape on the day that you know everyone's going to be occupied. But just three days before this happens, he was t- he was given what what was supposed to be some very good news. He was moving cells. His jailers came through and gave him the happy news that they were going to do him a favor, move him into a larger cell with windows and ventilation, much better, much much nicer place it was. And this absolutely shattered poor Casanova, who was just three days away from his escape attempt. He'd been working on this hole for weeks, and now all of a sudden, just days away from being able to use it, he's dragged through to a different cell. You know, ostensibly a much nicer cell, although it didn't have a great big bloody hole in the floor for him to escape You know, escape from. Now, interestingly, when... The jailers moved all of the furniture through to the other room. This was both a good and a bad thing for Casanova. The good news was that his armchair, with the spike hidden in it, was was moved into the uh, into the other room with him there. The bad news was they moved the bed and they found the hole in the floor. And so the so they searched him very thoroughly indeed, and they searched all of his furniture. They didn't find the spike, but he was under extremely. Extremely heavy suspicion from that point onwards. The jailers kept a very close eye on him. He denied it. He denied it out He said, "Well, I, I don't know how the hole got there. I mean, I I poss- couldn't have possibly made it. I mean, you 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 know, you've been watching me night and day. You know that you know that if I don't have any tools, nothing. So I don't know how you expect me to have done it." But after the hole was discovered under his bed, he was a very very close eye was kept on him, and so he realized that if he tried to dig another hole, they'd check, they'd find it, and that and that would be that. They'd be keeping a close eye on on you know the the floor, the ceiling, and, and the walls to make sure that he wasn't trying to tunnel his way out again. So this was a, a very tricky situation for Casanova, as despite having you know the very useful tool, this iron, this iron spike, he was unable to try to effect an escape. But all was not lost, because he managed to start communicating with another prisoner who was in the cell next to him. This guy was a priest, his name was Balbi, and he had been locked up after having his third child, to three different women. The first two had gotten him warnings, but the third had finally seen him locked up as a Catholic priest. Obviously, he wasn't allowed to have kids. And the two of these blokes, they started exchanging letters. Casanova would use, he used a fingernail cutting as a, as a quill and he used mulberry juice as ink. He was going to use his, his own blood until he realized, wait, I probably don't have to go to that length. I can just use this juice here. And they would smuggle these letters back and forth between each other by uh, lending each other books. They both had uh, little libraries there for themselves in in the jail, and they would use the jailers to ferry books between each other, uh, and they would hide these letters inside the books. And Casanova, right, uh, slowly but surely after corresponding with this bloke Balby, pulled together a plan to escape. But of course, he wasn't the one who could affect the escape. He couldn't use the spike in his own own cell, otherwise they'd find it. So he had to find a way to smuggle the spike to Balbi, so Balby could start doing the tunneling. And Casanova's plan to get Balbi the Spike sounds like something out of a children's cartoon. Are you ready for this? This plan really was, oh, it's just, it just, it's so ridiculous. Check this out, right? This is what happened. Casanova told his jailers, that he wanted to cook Balby a meal, right, of macaroni cheese. He wanted to make he wanted to make a big a big bowl of macaroni and cheese for. This is not a joke. This is one hundred percent. This is what Casanova wrote down in his memoirs. So you know whether it's true or not remains to be seen. But Casanova wrote this down as how he, he uh, this escape attempt went. He told his jailers, "Listen, Balby, he's lent me all these books. I wanna I wanna say thank you to him. I wanna make him a big big bowl of mac of, of mac and cheese, right, to say thank you to him." And so the jailers go, that's very nice of you, mate. Absolutely, no worries, we'll, we'll let you. And remember, these are these are higher status prisoners, so they do have, you know, they've got they've got more leeway than, than a lot of other prisoners would. But the jailers go, okay, no worries at all, we'll get you the stuff that you need. And so Casanova makes him this great big dish, like a laughably big dish of macaroni and cheese, right? Full of melted butter. Uh, the dish is, uh, there, there was too much pasta for this this dish. And so the jailers are having to, to basically very carefully balance and carry this dish, right? without without it spilling everywhere. And so the way that he smuggled the the spike from his cell to the other, right, was by hiding the spike inside a large bible, right? But the bible despite being large was not quite as large as this enormous plate of macaroni and cheese. And when the jailer came to deliver the macaroni, Casanova said, "Oh, do you mind taking this book back as well? Here, I'll put it under the plate. You can put the um you put the plate of macaroni on top of the bible and carry them both through there like that with both hands." And so the jailer, who had to be very careful so as to balance the dish overflowing with pasta so as not to spill any, right, unwittingly takes this Bible with, a, with an iron spike hidden inside it, underneath a plate of pasta, and delivered it to the priest in the cell. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds absolutely unbelievable, but apparently it bloody well worked because Balby got the spike. He had a beautiful... Year. He carb loaded that night and got underway after having this bloody big bowl of mac and cheese and got underway with tunneling using this uh, using this iron spike. He, uh, he he carved a hole or dug a hole in the ceiling, which he covered with a picture while, while he wasn't working. Obviously, he wasn't under the same suspicion as Casanova, so they weren't checking his cell. Um, and uh, once he dug this hole up into the crawl space... He then crawled over and dug a hole uh, through to just above um, uh, Casanova's cell as well. And so once everything was in readiness and once they were ready to go, obviously he couldn't actually dig through to Casanova's cell until, until the time was right. But one, uh, one night in late October, with everything in, uh, everything in readiness, Casanova finally was freed from his cell when Balbi knocked out a hole uh, in, in Casanova's ceiling and finally brought him up into the crawl space as well. They worked away together at one of the lead tiles of the roof until it loosened enough for them to get through, and they clambered out on top of the roof of the Doge's Palace here under the cover of a very foggy night. They picked their moment very carefully. There was a, there was a thick fog that protected them from being seen from the ground or anything else like that. However, they couldn't just jump off the roof of the, uh, of the Doge's Palace. It was far too high up, so they had to find a way back into the palace to escape from there. Obviously very risky indeed. They used the cover of the fog to lower themselves down uh, through a, uh, a bedroom window. They used a rope made of bedsheets. I mean, what kind of prison escape doesn't involve a rope made of bedsheets? They dropped down onto a bedroom window and they broke it and uh, and so managed to get into the palace proper itself, right? And there they changed into some fine clothes that they found, got out of the, the prison stuff that they were wearing, and they waited there until dawn right to escape together. And as a, uh, as a as a palace guard was going around and unlocking doors, they were spotted as being inside the uh, inside the prison and they had to convince the people who spotted them, "Oh yeah, we were locked in overnight and we couldn't get out." And and you know, without trying to raise too much suspicion after spinning this story, they just walked right out of the palace like they own the place, hurried but not too hurriedly, over to a gondola got on board and said, please, please take us away from this very quickly. Yes, off you go. Thank you. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And Casanova wrote about how as he was sailing away from Venice, he looked back and it was the sweetest sight in the world to see that no one had followed them. The alarm had never been raised and they had got away scot-free, six in the morning, walking out as the palace was being opened under the nose of the palace guard itself. No one came after them. And within the hour, Casanova, was back on the mainland and uh, from there made haste to get as far away from Venice as quickly as possible. He and Balbi, they went their separate ways and Casanova made his way back towards Paris, knowing uh, that he obviously could no longer show his face in his native Venice. But what adventures awaited him in Paris and, and afterwards and further beyond that? Of course, I've told you he, he, he was, he, all these adventures, he had all these people that he met, he's yet to meet, all the people that I promised, Frederick the Great, Mozart, Voltaire, Benjamin Franklin, Catherine the Great. Well... You're going to have to wait till next week. Be sure to tune in for part two of uh, the story of Casanova as we finish off the story of this bloke after his daring escape from prison. Go over some of the more, even more ridiculous adventures he had as he uh, travelled far and wide and met these luminaries from history and, of course, jumped into bed with a fair few people. You're not going to want to miss it. So we'll be back next week to finish this story. But that's it. That's all she wrote today. Oh, I guess actually, it's not even close to being all that was written about Casanova. That's half of what she wrote today, sports fans. Uh, we'll be back next week, of course, with more of of Casanova's story. But what a ridiculous story it is. I mean, this bloke. It's he sat down and wrote, you know, his memoirs that are just so absurdly long, and there's so much to get across from them. So I I just there was no way that I was going to be able to condense it all into into just one episode. So I'm sorry about the two parter, but. Uh, We'll be back next week with uh, with even more ridiculous stories of, uh, from, from Casanova's adventures from, uh, from, from the second half of his life. But that is that. Uh, thanks for tuning in, of course, to Half House History, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way. I'm going to try to burn through it very quickly. Halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there if you want to get in touch with some feedback or maybe a, a topic suggestion, anything else like that. Uh, running very low on T-shirts. Only got smalls and mediums left, so it's your last chance to pick them up. And uh, some notebooks are still on sale there if you'd like to get them from uh, the the shop. There's a link at the at the website there. And, of course, a special thank you to all the people who are supporting me on Patreon week in and week out. Uh, Patreon.com slash half assed history if you'd like to uh, support the show financially. And there you can get access to uncut episodes. You can hear me burping and farting and uh, and blowing me nose and all that sort of stuff if you're into that. Um, or you can become an executive producer of the show, the highest tier, uh, in addition to getting, obviously, early access to the show and all the rest of that sort of stuff as it, as it comes out a couple of days uh, ahead of time for, uh, for Patreon supporters. Uh, but that is that. Thanks, to, Thank you, everyone, for supporting the show. And, and please do tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people that you feel ambivalent about, the, uh, the, the, about this show. And uh, got to keep those numbers. Got to keep those numbers going up, mate. Rookie numbers in this game. Anyway, that's it. I'm out of here. Thanks for tuning in. And I'll catch you next week for the second half of the story of Casanova. In the meantime, leaving you with a question that was posed on Reddit, obviously um, uh, Casanova, a native Venetian, a native of Venice. And uh, this is a good question that was posed on Reddit by a redditor Canoe170 about Venice, who asks... Does roadkill in Venice just count as fishing?
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.